lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. Because the material that we're doing right now, I think, is um, pretty uh, dry and um, complex, I sort of gave the warning last week that the first part of the semester, what we're really doing is we've got a toolbox, you know, and we're going to take out a hammer, and we're going to look at that hammer, and we're going to put it back, and we're going to take out a screwdriver, and we're going to look at that screwdriver and talk about it, and we're going to put it back. And those are fairly dull things to do. But as the semester progresses, we'll develop a toolbox, and we're going to start doing what I consider to be the more fun things, where we're going to start putting them together in terms of more complex transactions with a wide range of benefits for clients. So what I want to do is to take a moment just to kind of peek ahead at some of the more complex things we'll be talking about and uh, a little bit later, but we've got to do some of the fundamentals first. So this is just sort of a jump ahead to look at the market, to look at uh, um, the, uh, uh, the, the industry for, for some of these uh, more advanced techniques we'll be getting into later, just so you don't sort of suffer and die on these sort of small-time little picky rules that we're dealing with right now. So let me give you an overview uh, of, some, of some plan giving uh, characteristics in terms, of, uh, in terms of trust planning. And uh, so the four players here are the employee, the company, the charity, and the government. And again, we start with the basics. Employees pay taxes. Here's an employee getting wages and paying taxes. And of course, we know by now that gifts to charity can receive a tax deduction. So fairly straightforward, government gives that tax deduction uh, as a result of the gift to a charity. Uh, who can be a charity? Um, we've talked about that. Uh, public charities are um, uh, one type of 501c3. They're operated for charitable purpose, no private benefit, and it's pretty easy to become one of these. Uh, you gotta uh, start with an IRS form 1023. There's a $750 filing fee and then an annual Form 990. Uh, neither of these two things have to be filed for churches. Churches are automatically assumed to be tax-exempt, although if they violate the rules, their tax exemption can be revoked retroactively, meaning that everybody who's deducted in the last three years can lose those deductions from the last three years. Uh, because there is a simple creation, that means we have lots of charities in this country. 501c3 public charities in the U.S. in 2008, about a million of them. Pretty easy to start up. We've got a lot of them around. By the way, that number excludes churches that aren't, that aren't required to file the tax forms and choose not to. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of charitable giving in the U.S. is that there are a lot of charities and they're easy to form. Uh, I believe that uh, if you have more charities, you have more requests and more donor choice, both of which lead to more donation. Um, okay, so companies, what do companies do? We know companies pay taxes and distribute some earnings. Uh, however, uh, charities don't do either of those things. They pay no taxes, assuming that they're not in some unrelated business, and they distribute no earnings. If they uh, distribute any earnings, then they are violating the rules for a charity and uh, could lose their tax exempt status. This is a good thing because if charity sells appreciated property, it pays no taxes on the sale. This is a particular benefit 
that we can take advantage of if we're wanting to donate to a charity, if we choose to donate appreciated property rather than uh, dollars. So here's normal capital gains. And the numbers I'm using here are somebody from California, which has a higher uh, tax uh, uh, setup than we do in Texas. But I want to give a more extreme example. So this is somebody at the highest rate, federal and state, living in California. They um, buy a stock for 1000 sell it for 11000 more than a year later. That gives them a capital gain of 10000 which means they have to pay this tax in that scenario of almost 30%, and they get to keep about 70%. All right? And that's the most extreme scenario, uh, but it gives you the idea. Now, if we give that property, we avoid capital gains tax. That $1,000 I bought the stock for, I then give it to a public charity when it's worth 11000 The charity sells the stock. Charity pays no capital gains tax. Now, in this top tax scenario, uh, top uh, federal and top state level uh, tax for the state of California, this $11,000 um, uh, contribution can reduce my taxes paid by as much as $5,516. I give this most extreme example because I want to sort of give you the difference between here, this giving to charity gives a benefit of 5516 and the previous slide, not giving to charity, gives a benefit of $7,070. So in that most extreme example, the, the gap between the benefit of keeping and the benefit of giving is relatively narrow. Now, there are large tax benefits from giving appreciated property. The donor gives the property. The charity sells the property. Charity pays no capital gains tax because it's a charity. Donor pays no capital gains tax because he didn't sell it. Donor receives the tax deduction for the full value of the property. Uh, and so these are large tax benefits. Now, these more advanced techniques we'll be looking at try to combine this core tax benefit with other benefits. Let's talk about three different kinds. There's a charitable remainder trust. What does a charitable remainder trust do? Well, think of this as two time periods. This is right now and during, say, the donor's life or during a number of years up to 20, and this is after that time period. What happens right now or, say, during the donor's life is that the donor receives payments or income from the assets that are in that basket because it's a trust. Trusts are baskets. And uh, then at the death of the donor or after the expiration of the period of years, whatever's left over goes to the charity. That's a charitable remainder trust. A pooled income fund is the same thing, except we have a bunch of people who all put their stuff into the same shared basket, and they get a, a share of that income that comes from that entire basket. Oops. Let's try to use that. Okay bad idea. All right, I'll figure that out later. And then finally, a charitable leads trust uh, is sort of a switch where what we will do is during the set number of years or donor life, we will give the income from the assets to the charity. And then after uh, the set number of years or the donor's life, we will um, allow uh, the, whatever's left in the basket will go to donor's family or whatever other individual's uh, he or she wants it to go to. That's charitable leads trust. So they're kind of mirror images of each other. Who gets the income now? Who gets the income at the end? Yeah. I was just wondering how the trusts are generating 
Uh, they're generating income from the uh, gift that's put into it. So the gift might be um, a mutual fund, and so they're either uh, having dividends paid or they're just selling off part of the mutual fund to, to make the payments. Oh, so they're all financial assets? M- most commonly, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we'll spend a lot of time on these, but this is just a general idea of how these animals look like. Okay. So, I mean, really, it's like charitable remainder trust, the guy that sets it up gets the income, uh, and then the rest goes to the charity. Charitable leads trust is the mirror. The guy that sets it up uh, doesn't get any income. The charity gets the income, and then at the end, it goes to, to non-charity. Okay, now I want to give you an idea of the market uh, uh, for these products, and this shows the charitable trusts by number, uh, by number of existing trusts, and this is from a study done in 07. Uh, And so what you can see here is that charitable remainder trusts, when you compare these three different kinds of trusts, um, they're the the big dog, so to speak. Okay, 94% by number of all the charitable trusts are charitable remainder trusts. Pooled income funds are relatively rare, so we don't really spend much time talking about them. Charitable leads trusts are 5% by number. However, if you look at charitable trusts by asset value, Notice as I flip back and forth here what happens to the red, which is charitable leads trusts. Okay. So what this is telling you is that charitable leads trusts, only 5% of charitable trusts are charitable leads trusts, but they hold a lot of money, relatively speaking. They're bigger, bigger trusts. Okay. All right. Charitable remainder trusts, there were a little over 115,000 of these in existence um, in 2007. Total assets of about $97 billion and an annual charitable distribution of about $1.5 billion. That means that there's an annual share of assets to charity of about 1.6%. This is relatively low. It is possible for this number to increase as the uh, sort of death rate of, uh, of the uh, measuring lives uh, could increase over time, but charitable remainder trusts have been around since the 1960s, so um, you would expect that, uh, that that may not have a huge effect. Pooled income funds, um, fewer of those, a little over 1,500, uh, about a billion total in assets, uh, and they distribute to charities at about 5%. One of the reasons they distribute more to charities is that the charities actually set these up, so they're not going to set them up if, you know, if for a 1% distribution, whereas the, the charitable remainder trust, it's the donors setting them up, so they can, uh, they can set them up. The, the distributions, of course, don't happen until after death in many cases, so that number could, could change. And then finally, charitable leads trusts. Um, you see about a little over 6,000, uh, but they have about $18 billion in assets, and their annual share of assets that go to charity is a little over 5%. Okay, um, now let's talk about private foundations, non-operating private foundation. How does that work? Well, it works like this. Right now, I put a gift into my private foundation. I get a tax deduction right now. At some point in the future, or at least 5% a year, I distribute out that money from my private foundation to whatever charities I feel like distributing it out to. Okay? So I get the tax deduction right now. I don't have to distribute it until later. Uh, there is a minimum of 5% per year. Private don- uh, foundation may be managed by donor and donor's friends and, or family, so that means that I still have influence over management of the assets that are in the private foundation. Non-operating private foundations in the U.S., a little over 77,000. 
and total assets of about half a trillion dollars. Annual share of assets to charity, about 8%. And notice there's actually a statutory requirement of 5% minimum annual distributions. And so because of that, uh, you get a higher number here. So if you look at comparative share of total assets held now that we throw private foundations into it, you find out who the real big dog is, is private foundations. Uh, in terms of total assets, with charitable remainder trusts making about 15%, and then charitable leads trust 3%, and at this point, I'm taking out pooled income funds because they're just too small to care about. <clears throat> Comparative share of charitable distributions made. Again, flipping back between the, few, the two pictures, you can see how charitable remainder trusts have more assets, but they distribute less in terms of actual charitable distributions. Uh, private foundations uh, distribute more in terms of uh, actual distributions. Uh, private foundation is created by the donor and follows his rules about what kinds of uh, charities to give to, his or her rules. Donor advised fund is very similar to a private foundation. However, uh, it's slightly different in that you're making the gift to a charity, not to your own private foundation, but to a public charity, and then giving advice as to where that public charity should distribute those funds uh, in later years. So it's slightly different concept. Uh, let's compare the two. Private foundations, contributions receive an immediate tax deduction even though they're not paid out until later. Same thing with donor advised funds. Private foundations, money is held by that private foundation. Donor advised funds, money is held by a public charity. Private foundation, the money is later given to other charities based upon board decisions and the donor's original rules. Donor advice fund, the money is later given to other charities, usually following the advice of a donor. They don't have to, they just always do. Because if they didn't, donors wouldn't give them money in the future. Uh, private foundation, there is significant expense to create them and uh, expense to maintain them. There's annual tax return filings and various things you have to do. There's very little expense to create and maintain, talking about a half of 1% uh, annually uh, in uh, the large mutual fund uh, management companies. Average size of private foundation, $6.6 .6 million. Average size of donor advice fund, $200,000. So that gives you a sense of the different animals that are in the uh, charitable jungle there, so to speak. Uh, donor advice funds, this is a newer thing, a newer concept. The very first mutual fund donor advised fund uh, was from Fidelity in 1991. Why was this such a big deal? It is such a big deal because this was the first time that investment advisors can earn commissions for managing the client's assets within the donor advised fund. This creates financial incentive for charitable planning because it is still assets under management even after it's been shifted to charitable purposes um, or at least into a charitable holding tank. The minimum initial contribution is only five grand. The three largest mutual fund donor advice funds are Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard, and, uh, and they're fairly dominant in the market right now. Let me show you the donor accounts, the number of donor accounts at Fidelity. Um, I mentioned last week that this was an area that um, we're still seeing growth in. Um, uh, of course, there's gonna be some impact from the downturn in the market but as you see here, the number of donor accounts at the largest donor advised fund continues to grow all the way through the, uh, the, the, the crash. 
Schwab, uh, number of donor accounts and donor advised funds, pretty much the same trend line there. Um, a little bit lower. If you notice the, the, the number on the left, Fidelity is up to about 50,000, where Schwab is about 11,000 right now because they're, they're coming to the market later. And then Vanguard um, getting close to 7,000. So these, these are the reasons why the growth trends are really strong with this kind of uh, donor advised planning. Assets. Uh, here you see in Fidelity that, of course, there's the impact of the, uh, of the uh, financial crisis, but still in all in 2009, we're still above 2006, and the early reports from 2010 is we're actually going to be back up here because they've been breaking all records in terms of new contributions coming in. Um, Schwab, here in Schwab in 2009, already above where they were in 2007. There's not, there's not too many other um, funds that... Uh, uh, that, that are seeing those kinds of, uh, of, of trends because of uh, interest of people, new accounts, that sort of thing. And then here, Vanguard, the same thing. In 2009, they're already back above where they were in 2007 in terms of total assets. And this, of course, is not because of you know, brilliant investments. It's because more people are opening more accounts and they're putting more money into those accounts. So uh, charitable distributions. Char charitable distribution averages for mutual fund donor advised funds. Uh, around uh, 1921, even 25%, and compare those to the previous numbers that we saw. Um, why are those numbers so high? Well, one of the reasons the numbers are so high is that these things are really handy. If you get to the end of the calendar year and you're like, okay, um, you figure out how much you want to make in charitable deductions, well, you don't write checks to a bunch of places right then because you've got to think through all that. Just write one big check to your donor advice fund. You get to deduct it, and then you'll figure it out later. Um, where you want it to go to in different places. So people will use these as pass-through entities sometimes, and that's why you see the high percentages here. Now, the interesting thing is they don't have to be used that way. In fact, right now, there is no regulation that says you have to make any distributions out of a donor-advised fund. No 5% minimum per year like you have with private foundations. Uh, no 10% uh, of total value like you have with charitable remainder trusts. It's, but, it, but they're still... Um, that's probably one of the reasons it hasn't been regulated because the percentages are so high uh, already. So donor advised funds. Um, this is me putting together a few different sources of information to estimate um, some of these numbers. Um, but uh, the estimate uh, is uh, $27 billion and uh, estimate of annual charitable distributions. And what I did here is combined those numbers you just saw with the report from the Council on Foundations that... Uh, got information back from community foundation donor advised funds uh, and mixing those two and saying that that's representative. Uh, so comparative share of total assets held now that we throw in donor advised funds. Um, we see donor advised funds, they're growing like crazy, but they're new. So here we've got private foundation assets and uh, we've got uh, the charitable lease trust, charitable remainder trust, and this little green guy here, that's the, uh, uh, that's the donor advised funds. It's new. It's not as big, um, but it's growing uh, quite rapidly. And now if we look at comparative share of charitable distributions made, and again, flipping back and forth, uh, we see that the red, which is charitable remainder trust, whole lot of assets, don't distribute much charitable. The green, which is donor advised funds, aren't yet holding a lot of assets, but they're distributing uh, out quite a bit. Right. In both private foundations and in donor advised funds, uh, ultimately 
everything is charitable. Okay, uh, the difference is that um, well, there's a lot of differences, but but one is that right now private foundations have to pay out a minimum of five percent a year. Donor advised funds don't have to pay out anything um, because technically, once you give it to the donor advised fund, the fund itself is a public charity, and so it's not a matter of giving it to a public charity eventually. It's already there. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit of a market overview, and uh, that's what we'll do for next week. Thanks for coming. And uh, go ahead and post the, your assignments on Blackboard, and I'll set up the assignments uh, tabs for the other two things.